Agnostics, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, attorney and former deputy assistant to President Trump, May Mailman. Hey, Mike. Hey, May. How are you doing this morning? I am great. How are you? <laughs> great. I I don't know if I, I rise to the level of great, but I think I'm doing okay so far. So we'll, we shall see. Uh, and we have a lot of things we want to talk about today. We want to get into the uh, current events with Israel and Hamas and President Biden's executive order on artificial intelligence, a number of disqualification challenges to Donald Trump on the ballot, uh, the First Amendment and social media blocking a couple of big cases before the Supreme Court. And speaking of blocking, Senator Tuberville's military blocks and how uh, there are some even Republicans in the Senate who are not so happy with that. And if we have time, maybe the uh, ACA marketplaces at 10, uh, all of that. We almost certainly won't get to all of that in the regular show. And so what we don't get to, as always, we will move into our supporters midweek show. So but before we get to that, I want to thank one of our new supporters, uh, Kyle, who's a new free trial member, which is a thing you can do on Patreon if you're interested in checking that out. You can always find the link on our show notes. And so, Kyle, welcome. We hope you enjoy the trial period and that you become a permanent supporter after that period is over. Let's move on then uh, to our top story for this week, and that is Israel and Hamas. Uh, Israel's expected ground offensive into Gaza has now begun, and Israeli forces are reporting at this point that they've already killed several Hamas leaders, but of course it's come at a significant cost. Uh, the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza reports over 8,500 dead at this point, including uh, 3,500 children. And while those numbers haven't been independently verified, th there's no question that there's been a significant casualty count among Palestinians in Gaza. And over this last week or so, calls for a humanitarian ceasefire have started to mount. And in fact, this week, the Biden administration joined those calls to allow for the release of hostages as well as distribution of humanitarian aid. And at a fundraiser on Wednesday of this week, President Biden responded to a, a protester actually by saying, I think we need a pause. A pause means give time to get the prisoners out. Now, the administration has made it clear that while they're in favor of humanitarian and prisoner release pauses, they do not support calls for a general ceasefire at this point. And on Friday, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken told reporters that he'd urged Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to pursue a pause. But in a press conference later that day, Netanyahu rejected any pause that didn't include the return of the over 200 hostages that Hamas is holding and that Israel would continue its bombardment in the Gaza Strip with, in his words, all of its power. Now, to this point, there are 79 Americans who have left Gaza since that crossing opened in Egypt, but there are many more Americans that remain. Earlier this week, Blinken told the Senate committee that there were around 400 American citizens and their family members in Gaza, totaling around 1,000 people. 
So, May, on this issue of a pause, what do you think? Should the U.S. be calling for a pause? How hard should we push Israel on this? What's your take? So let's keep in mind that the number of uh, Israelis and U.S. citizens that I think, well, maybe not, but at least Israelis that died on um, October 7th, if you were to put that in the scale of United States numbers, it would be upwards of 40,000 people. Um, So, you know, let's just pretend that that happened to our country, roughly 40,000 people of our neighbors, of our friends. If let's just say we shared a religion with them, we shared a culture with them, they died. And then the whole world said, uh, yes, the people who did this to you are living a mile away from you, and they have been shooting rockets at you for decades. Um, and there, there was a ceasefire up until October seventh. Um, but we'd like you to to sort of pause and and let the terrorists regroup, let them move the hostages, let them come up with a plan, let them continue to work with Iran, let Hezbollah threaten the United States. I don't know if you saw that uh, yesterday, but Hezbollah said to the United States, you know, you guys need to back off. We're, we're going to do what we're going to do. Um, I think that we would have rejected that very strongly. And I think that Israel should reject it very strongly. There's a, a, a pause, a ceasefire, whatever you want to call it, is only going to help Hamas, is only going to danger Israelis. Now, if Hamas said, I'm going to give you back every hostage, 220 hostages are coming your way, then maybe we can have a conversation. But they haven't said that. They've released five people. Five people. There are still babies being held hostage. So this this is, I, I do not understand. I, I think that it's a pure political move from the Biden administration. He senses that he's losing support among young people, among Muslims, and he is trying to appease them. But in so appeasing, I think he is uh, lacking some moral clarity, is lacking some realism, realism of how countries work, um, of what people respond to, of incentives, of deterrence. Um, And I think it's just going to ultimately end a lot bloodier because if a lot of these other countries who have been itching to get in sense American weakness, sense American lack of political will, well, I think... I think they're not going to hesitate. I guess on that, I I wonder, because I I think it's important to make a distinction between a a pause and a ceasefire, because to me, that that, I mean, I I certainly agree with you that if put in the United States context, if we had had a terrorist incident where 40,000, roughly 40,000 Americans were killed, uh, our our reaction to calls for a a pause would would be a a very understandably emotional, I don't think so, not if we're getting, not getting anything back for that. So I I certainly agree with you that a pause would have to be contingent on all of the hostages being returned, because that's just simply not, I mean, that's just not acceptable that they're holding hostages. Uh, And, but There's another argument, and this is an argument from uh, probably further left than I'm at, that's saying that, well, 
Israel is, in effect, keeping hostages. In fact, around the half a million or so, give or take, non-combatants that are stuck in Gaza and subject to this this bombing and these attacks. And well, what do you I mean, I'm not saying you have to agree with that argument. I'm sure you don't. But how do we how do we weigh the very real suffering of hundreds of thousands of people who had literally nothing to do with this uh, in, in in the in the balance here? Well, the suffering of people who have, quote unquote, nothing to do with this, which, remember, uh, Israel has not had any control over Gaza since 2006. And in 2007, Hamas was elected to be in control of the Gaza region. In their time with control, they have uh, distributed aid to themselves while they don't even live in Gaza. They have prevented water pipelines from being built in Gaza so they could build rockets with them. They have exacerbated the suffering of their people. And then when Israel gave them two weeks warning to say that we are going to come get our hostages back, people that you stole from us, elderly and children that you stole from us, they barricaded themselves within their own people. They barricaded themselves because they know that Israel is a humanitarian nation, that that would be a deterrent. They would not have cared about barricading themselves in with civilians if they thought that Israel was actually barbaric. It wouldn't have mattered. They wouldn't have cared. But they actually told their citizens to stay in recognition that that's how Israel would respond, that it would wait, that it would not do airstrikes, it would have to come in through the ground, all of these things. So, um, I, and then the other with this, like holding people hostage thing there, there are minority populations of religions living in Israel. There are no Jews living in the Gaza region. So who is on, you know, who's rooting out who, I guess, is my question. So I, I just don't buy any of that. I think it's, uh, it's anti-factual. And there have been multi uh, offers of two state solutions, including from Bill Clinton. Uh, The Palestinians have not taken those. They do not want a two state solution. They do not want freedom from Israel. They have freedom from Israel. They want from the river to the sea. They want to exterminate the Jews. I mean, if you go and just listen to any of these uh, rallies that are happening. There are a lot of undercover reporters that go in and say, what do you think should happen to the Jews? And they say they should go to hell. So th- that, that um, these are not my words. This is what is being advocated for. I, I have no sympathy for that. So I agree on Hamas. They're, they're corrupt and they're brutal and they're just generally awful and inept at governing. But again, I come back to, even if I agree with all that, there are a lot of just Palestinians who aren't Hamas, and maybe they have some very anti-Semitic views. But I guess what I'm wondering is, is that is, is what should the position of Israel and the United States in supporting Israel be? Well, you know what? They the Palestinians hate Jews. And so if we have to kill 10,000 of them to get to two Hamas leaders, that's OK. I guess that's what I'm wondering. Well, I don't think that that is the position, right? That is why Israel didn't go in the day after 
that is why they're they're putting themselves, they're putting Israelis at risk to go and walk onto Gaza territory and go find people rather than blowing up buildings. So this hypothetical of is it worth it, 10,000 for two, clearly it's not. Clearly, that's already been the decision that's been made at high risk to the Israelis, at high risk to the hostages. Um, so, so like, you know, I think we're all on the same page here. But at the same time, I think that it's not necessarily accurate to say that the Palestinian people are extremely sort of out of this. They're they had no say. They're just here. They're, you know, since 2007, they have empowered Hamas without any, you know, uprising, without any dissent, without any alternative leadership plan. Like this, this to me seems like the plan. I mean, Hamas has a higher approval rating in in Gaza than Joe Biden does here. I did this is the selected path. So I, you know, while I don't agree that you should just bulldoze as many people as possible, I also don't think that that was ever on the table. And so what we're talking about now really is a pause or a ceasefire for, I don't even see what reason. They say it's to get the hostages back. Has there been an offer? I Not that I can see. So I, I just, I don't understand. Yeah, and, and we agree on that, though. I Where I would disagree with you is that uh, even if we take, I mentioned those at the at the top of this story, mentioned those numbers from the uh, the health ministry in Gaza about the numbers of dead uh, and, and wounded. And I, I would assume that in, in the past we found that those numbers have been inflated. But even we cut those numbers a lot, I think that at the upper levels of uh, Israel's government, the decision has been made that, that okay, maybe not 10,000 to get one, but if it's uh, a, a thousand uh, casualties, uh, collateral damage to get one Hamas leader, well, we eliminating Hamas is that important, and we are willing to sacrifice that number of Palestinian lives because, and, and as you point out, right, part of the strategy of Hamas is to hide amongst the, to shelter amongst civilians so that Israel will be forced to do that. But I think Israel's making a decision that, yes, it's come to that point where we, we feel we need to do that. I'm not saying that's the wrong decision, but I'm just saying that is that is a decision with uh, some pretty significant uh, and some pretty uh, big ethical uh, consequences as well. Yeah, but on the flip side, should 10,000 Israelis die, should 20,000, should a million, should 2 million? Because if you do not defeat Hamas, if you do not react strongly to babies being burned, uh, to entire families being massacred, if you don't react, what do you think is going to happen? And especially when you get the entire Arab world involved, where it's not just Gaza, where you all of a sudden now have support for some reason for uh, other countries to get involved here. We're not talking in the number of thousands. As we've seen in the Holocaust, we could be talking in the number of millions. And the Jewish people have already been constrained to a small postage stamp in the Middle East. And, and that that is supposed to be zero. 
if you listen to what people are calling for, it's supposed to be zero. So I don't actually think that what we're talking about is uh, 10,000 Palestinians in order to save two Jewish people. I think what we're talking about is should there be an extermination of Jewish people and should there be an elimination of Israel? And if the answer to that is no, then there has to, has to, has to be a strong and what's going to be a violent reaction. I don't think that that's a great option. I don't think there are any great options here. I think they're all bad. But I think that the reason that we have all bad options is because of this attack. So then we have to ask, why did we have this attack? Um, I think we can, you know, point a lot of fingers. But uh, as between the bad options, I don't I don't know if uh, Palestinian lives are the only lives that we should be talking about. Well, certainly not. And I agree with you entirely that there are nothing but bad options on the table at this point. Let's move more toward domestic focus in that on Thursday of this week, the House passed a uh, $14.3 billion Israel military aid bill. This was a standalone bill. It was a mostly a party line vote. Uh, Twelve Democrats joined in with all but two Republicans in support of that. And if you're curious, the two Republicans that opposed it, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Thomas Massey, who basically opposes everything. But now now the bill didn't include any humanitarian aid for Gaza and President Biden included that as part of that uh, $105 billion Israel-Ukraine immigration funding request we talked about a few weeks back. But this package would be paid for in the short run by taking the same amount, $14.3 billion, from IRS enforcement. Now that, that by the way, the Congressional Budget Office estimates will actually increase the deficit by $12.4 billion over the next decade. And as you would expect, uh, on the Senate, this is basically dead on arrival. Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, said they're not going to take it up. And even if they were, it's not like it would get the president would pass or get President Biden's approval uh, in any case. So, May, I guess the question I'm wondering here is that House Republicans knew that this bill wasn't going anywhere. So, why do you think they passed it as opposed to something that maybe would have had a better chance at becoming law, or at least didn't have a built-in poison pill of the whole IRS enforcement thing, which is a whole other issue, right? But that's a big issue on the right. Well, I do sense that that is a bargaining chip, right? So they're passing this $14 billion, which is the number that Biden was interested in. Um, and yes, it does take from Inflation Reduction Act funding, uh, which, you know, the IRS was funded to the tune of an extra 80 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act. And so this takes 14 of that. So it's not like it guts the Inflation Reduction Act. It's not like it guts the IRS. I know that the Democrats are trying to say, oh, you like wealthy people. Uh, the wealthy people are not affected by more IRS funding. They have lawyers to go talk to and fight the IRS. It's people who don't. It's when the IRS comes and talks to you and says, give me $10,000 and you, that's all you got to do it. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the IRS play was a, a smart one, a good one. We are, we have a $32 trillion deficit. Not borrowing this money is a good idea, um, even though we are borrowing all money basically right now. But um, it, I think it's a great bargaining chip. So you send over the, the number that uh, the Senate and Biden has asked for in a direction that they've asked for. And yes, you have a pay for, 
But if the Senate wants to say, you know, we don't want, we want just to borrow this money, or if the Senate wants to say we want it out of some other pocket, uh, then I, I think then that's a discussion. And I think that the American people are very torn on Ukraine funding, in fact, against it. Not, you know, a lot of people are unsure, but the approval rating for sending more weapons to Ukraine is somewhere around 40% for everybody, 35% for Republicans. Um, and so I just, I think it makes political sense, even if it's dead on arrival. I guess I feel that while I, I certainly would disagree with you on a number of points about the IRS, that, that particular issue about how that money would be spent uh, and uh, the effects on the deficit, that sort of thing. But that, that's a whole other issue. I'll just kind of leave that to the to this side. As listeners know, I've gone back and forth with Jan <laughs> a lot in the past. But to the more uh, the thing, other thing you focused on is that I agree that it makes sense as a as a counteroffer, if you will, to the Biden proposal. And I, I find myself torn, certainly, in, in that it, uh, I think you can make, if you believe that Israel should be, should get supplemental U.S. funding, because Israel, of course, has been by far the uh, largest, single largest recipient of U.S. aid really since world, really since Israel was founded, essentially. But uh, I think that makes sense. And that kind of leads me, I guess, into what might be a larger question. One of our listeners, uh, Jmarsh006 times 1619, that's his screen name or her, I don't know, uh, wrote, isn't it just me or is anyone else questioning why we're giving money to Israel or thinking about giving money to Israel in the first place? He writes, uh, sorry, he, they, I don't know. Uh, they have a GDP of over 500 billion and 50,000 GDP per capita. They're a wealthy nation. Why are we sending them money? They should be able to pay for their war themselves like everyone else. And I thought that was a question that was at least worth considering. And I did some digging. So, for instance, according to Global Firepower, which is a group that rates the strength of world militaries, Israel has the 18th most powerful military in the world. They're right there between Iran and Vietnam, over 170 or around 170,000 active duty troops, 465,000 reserves. In the last year, the U.S. has given Israel's military roughly $3.8 billion. This is before those Hamas attacks. And so the question is, you know, why a handout to a rich country that's running, by the way, they're running a budget surplus this year, $2.85 billion. Yeah, they have a national debt, but it's a lot less than ours and declining. Uh, theirs is something around 70% of their GDP compared to ours, which is around 144% of our GDP. And so I think people can look at that. And certainly this is the argument that a lot of Republicans are. Our, uh, conservatives are very comfortable making regarding Ukraine, saying like, well, wait a second, America first, don't we have our own problems at home here? And especially for a country that is economically and militarily so very strong, why are we considering giving them $14 billion? Why don't we loan it to them or do something like that? But why the handout? It's a reasonable question. What do you think, May? So when the question was first asked, you know, my knee-jerk reaction is, no, we've got to give money to Israel. And then when you think about it a little bit more, 
um, my other knee-jerk reaction of all four and eight is bad may, might actually be stronger. So the best arguments I can see of why we're giving money um, hand over fist to Israel uh, is, one, we do use it the way that we use other aid as leverage. So in 2000, Congress threatened to reduce aid to Israel if they provided weapons to China. So we're able to, because Israel produces its own weapons, they have their own, you know, manufacturing base. We can help control where some of those weapons are going. Obviously, we think that they wouldn't give it to Arab nations, but they would probably give it to China. So having that uh, that oversight, I guess, is a positive thing. Um, also, there was an appeasement reason. So with the Iran nuclear deal, Israel was very not happy about that. And they thought that it would increase threats from Iran. So there was an increased spending package during the Obama uh, era where it kind of pacified some Israeli concerns that they would be able to then keep up with increased threats from Iran. But also there's this back scratching reason So when we give them money, we require them to spend, you know, I've seen a number 26% um, on, uh, so there used to be a provision that required them to spend some percent on Israeli-made weapons, and that was uh, requiring them to build up their base. Well, now that their base is uh, fully functioning, we are now requiring them to purchase some weapons from us. And so giving them money, I think, is a sort of giveaway to Lockheed Martin and Boeing in a sense. So that that is not great for a lot of reasons. It's not cost effective for Israel if they can make them cheaper themselves. Um, it's not good for their uh, manufacturing base. They'd probably like to build that up. So I am kind of... Uh, on board with this do you really need the money thing i think maybe right now is not the right time to ask that question but i do like the question yeah i i thought it was an interesting i hadn't even thought about it until uh the listener asked that but i think you make a good point it's not just an economic issue. It's a strategic issue. And for the reasons you mentioned, also the interest groups, right, the defense contractors certainly have a big push on that. And it's a politics issue in terms of attracting voters. And and also, of course, the U.S. has a has an interest in ensuring that the conflict in the Middle East doesn't widen. And Israel is always very interested in pointing out to us that they are the only other uh, democracy, right, the only democracy in the region. There are closest ally in that region. And we're very concerned about Iran, particularly, and Iran and Russia supporting Iran are, are certainly major strategic, strategic enemies. And Israel is happy to use that truth, that geopolitical truth, as leverage to try to get money from us. And I, so I think when you look at that broader picture, on the, on the, the stamp, just from the standpoint of, hey, they're a wealthy country, they don't really need it. Yeah, 
But there are all these other things, and that's, I think, why we see the amount of aid going to Israel, uh, a flat-out aid and not loans or things like that going to Israel that uh, that we do see going. And I expect that at some point in the near term, uh, some sort of Israel aid package will be approved. And, and particularly, I would say, in the short run, it's important that they get things like munitions and uh, Iron Dome uh, defenses uh, resupplied as quickly quickly as possible. It's certainly not that they are facing any sort of existential threat from Hamas, but if you add in Hamas and maybe Hezbollah, which has been making some rumblings, all of a sudden there, it's a bigger concern about the conflict widening that you, that certainly would not be in the interests of the United States. So let's move on to domestic politics. This week, President Biden issued an executive order on the safe, secure, and trustworthy development and use of artificial intelligence, or we'll just call it the AI artificial or uh, executive order, I think. But it's long and involved, uh, uh, much more so than a lot of other of these executive orders, and includes all kinds of things. Main things would be directives to federal agencies to create standards and regulations to use AI responsibly, as well as requiring AI developers to notify the federal government when they're training a model that would that would pose a risk to national security and including the results of their internal risk assessment and what's called red team testing of security issues with AI systems. And those testing standards would are to be set by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. The order also directs the Departments of Energy and Homeland Security to evaluate risks, risks posed by AI models. The Commerce Department has the job of determining which AI models are potentially dangerous enough to meet these reporting requirements. And that's not clear exactly how that will work at this point. But until a standard on that is development, this developed, sorry, the requirement will only apply to models that are trained using uh, power of, let me see if I get this right, it's a big number, above 100 million billion billion operations. Uh, that's a lot. And that's higher than any model currently being trained. It's estimated by one group to be five times greater than the uh, number of operations used to train GPT-4. Now, this order goes to pretty much the limit of what the administration can do on its own. And really, without congressional action, there aren't going to be significant safeguards, at least not that can uh, withstand, withstand judicial scrutiny in place concerning things like privacy, bias in AI models, risk management, uh, or consumer protection regarding AI. So, May, what did you think about this executive order on artificial intelligence? So it's 100 pages long. And so my big thought is that it's just very long. I've written a lot of executive orders and executive orders are kind of stupid, which is like, you know, <laughs> my job. So I can, I can criticize my own job, uh, because they don't do anything. Um, it, it's the Obama. I have a pen and a phone. They're the same. You could just pick up the phone and call the FTC and say, could you guys do some regulations on, uh, on AI? But I guess it's good for the public to know where their head is. Uh, my initial thoughts are a couple of things. One, the only real authority that's being asserted here. So a lot of it is I call on agencies to do a better job or I call on Congress to do a better job. 
But the one legal authority is the Defense Production Act, which they are saying that and it's only mentioned once in 100 pages. Um, but the Defense Production Act enables them to collect the testing results from various AI models and red team them and, and otherwise participate. It doesn't say what section of the Defense Production Act. I mean, it's it's it just says the Defense Production Act allows I, I, this. I noticed that too. I got to say, I read through the whole thing and then I tried to find a section in the Defense Production Act that might apply. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time doing that. And honestly, I came up empty. Right. So we in the Trump administration used it during COVID to prioritize government contracts for ventilators, things like that. So that, uh, you know, for the national defense, you can jump the front of the line and get government orders done quickly. And you can basically make the company instead of them saying, oh, I don't know if I'm going to take this order. You take this order and you take us first. So that type of thing is is defense and production, and it, it makes sense within the act. Just show me your data. I would be interested to see what a legal challenge looks like, um, because I definitely think there's one available, but it's hard to even know what that's like, because they didn't tell me what section of the Defense Production Act they're using. Um, you know, there's an article in Forbes that I also found pretty interesting here. Um, and the title of it is Biden's new AI executive order is regulation run amok. And they have a couple of points. The first is that if you are requiring tech companies to share all of their testing results with the government, you will get less testing, not more, because they don't want to keep sharing everything with the government. Two, uh, they're going to be spending an enormous amount of money on this red teaming and all of that and not investing in improving their AI. So you're going to have sort of wasted money toward government regulation away from a better product, a safer product. Um, you're going to stifle then innovation. Maybe small companies can't build an entire AI model, but they can build little pieces of them and then get bought out by Google or whatever. Um, those groups are not going to have enough money in order to meet the government regulatory burden. And so those small companies are not going to be allowed to exist, basically. Bureaucratic Turf wars in a hundred pages. You can imagine a lot of different agencies are mentioned. So, UFTC, I want you to talk about fair competition, but you, Department of Labor, I want you to talk about employer use of AI. Well, what happens when those merge? Who wins? Who loses? This happens a lot in the federal government. Um, and the EO doesn't give clarity on those areas of overlap. So basically, it just it invites a bureaucratic nightmare that I think at the end of the day risks harming the United States AI industry while China, et cetera, their AI industry continues to thrive. And all of a sudden, the world is on China's models rather than on the U.S. models. And that's dangerous for, you know, sort of all the reasons you might expect. On on that side, well, first I'll say that I do not think that the 
uh, the part of the order that focuses on uh, requiring companies to do the red teaming and share their results. And that, I, I don't think that that would withstand judicial scrutiny. I, I don't think that that's within the scope of executive power. But putting that aside, and I think you would probably agree with me on that, but let's say Congress passed legislation that essentially did the same thing. And, and and certainly that's something a lot of people are calling for, then that maybe brings in the concerns that the Forbes article raised. I find myself disagreeing with almost all of those. For one thing, I believe that if the, if the standard is set as high as those models trained using that massive amount of computational power, small companies are not going to be doing that. I don't buy the argument that it's going to require so much in resources that they're going to be uh, spending more time on testing than innovation. And I, 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 so I, I don't, I fundamentally disagree with the premises of that argument. But I would say for this point, at this point, it's it's a moot point because this will never happen because it won't withstand a legal challenge. But the other part of that AI, and, and so I'm, I'm not okay with that part of the order because I think it's not, I think it's uh, not something the president can do. But the other part of that order makes a lot of sense to me. I think the federal go federal government agencies should develop standards and practices and rules and regulations to responsibly use AI. And I, I guess it would be weird for me for to have any large organization that uses AI to not be working on figuring out those sort of things. And it seems to me that's kind of like a standard thing you'd want to do in any large organization. And I would guess if you would find any part of this order not objectionable, it would be that part, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't mind the goal of the executive order. I I think like many Americans am scared about AI in the wrong hands, AI that doesn't have sufficient controls on it, AI that just is too smart. I mean, that, that just sort of rejects inputs at some point. I mean, it, it is scary, but is it scarier, I guess, for the federal government to be the one that's putting the regulations on this? Because I have worked in the federal government and while there are some smart, good people there, I don't think that they actually have the tech technological knowledge that people in Silicon Valley have. And I just, can't fathom them coming up to speed and figuring out. I mean, if you know how AI works, if you know the controls that need to be there, if you know uh, all of these things, um, privacy, all that, you're making money. You're living in Silicon Valley. You're not, you know, churning out your time at, at DARPA in the DOD making, you know, $70,000 a year in the, the second or third most expensive city in America. So, I I just I have even though I like the idea I I don't I just don't see how this is and you know and who's sitting on top of the federal government right now Joe Biden is Joe Biden going to approve these regulations is he going to be aware of them I, it it just it doesn't seem to me to meet reality well, of course, of course, Joe Biden isn't going to do just like in the Trump administration, like Donald Trump was looking at regulations and going like, well, Section three, subparagraph four, I've got an issue with that. Right. So, that, I mean, that never happens. But I guess the broader question I have for you is 
it almost sounds to me, and I don't think I'm right here, is that you're saying that the industry shouldn't be regulated by government because government employees don't know enough to regulate it. I mean, you could expand that saying like, for instance, well, uh, people in finance know a lot more about the finance industry than government regulators. So therefore we shouldn't regulate banks. And, and that's of course taken to its logical conclusion. That's an absurd argument. I think most people would agree. And I guess you're not taking that conclusion, but I'm trying to figure out where you see there being a balance, assuming that you don't believe that AI should be entirely unregulated given the potential threat it poses. Can you? Right. So I think there's only bad options, I guess, is what I'm saying, because we do have a generally unregulated internet and it has its pros and its cons, right? The internet is very good. It enables a lot of information to flow to us very quickly. It's made us more productive. It's also proliferated child pornography. So um, there are pros and cons to a lack of internet regulation. I think the same in AI. The lack of regulation will have a lot of positive innovations. It will make us more productive. And yet, if you don't regulate, it's not going to be child pornography. It's going to be some something else bad. Okay. So am I willing to sacrifice the good to limit the bad? It, it just depends, I guess, is what I'm saying. What bad are we preventing and what good are we preventing? And this executive order doesn't give me any knowledge or confidence of what that balance is going to be. You know, I assume that there will be follow on regulations uh, that maybe will help clarify it. But my so I'm not saying that, you know, the government should be all the way out. It's just um, there are pros and cons to government regulation. and. Um, getting getting the model right is necessary and maybe you do need some sort of separate agency some sort of sec like body where it they do get paid a little bit more they are members of the industry a little bit more um maybe it's not even based in washington dc that this is a group of people and then people don't like that it's a revolving door but um yeah, and that, and yeah, that's, I, yeah, that's always the problem with regulators. If you get in regulators who have enough experience and understanding of an industry, well, they're going to almost inevitably come from that industry. And then you have those issues of bias and capture and revolving door. And all. It's, 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 again, a number of bad options. And certainly another problem with this is it's impossible to know what innovations you're preventing if they don't actually happen right and so you're you're dealing with a lot of uncertainties here like for instance the financial industry uh was fairly unregulated for well not unregulated but loosely regulated and they they came up with all sorts of innovative financial products some of them were really great but some of them were truly horrifically bad as we found out in, in part you know we won't get into that but and so how do you balance that that's always tricky and why, that's why i think it's a good thing certainly those of us on the left are have a tendency to be much more in favor of stronger government regulation and you know you folks on the right tend to be the other way and i think that that push and pull while it can be frustrating at times is almost certainly to me 
the best way to go about it because it keeps that tension in place. And I think that's in general, in the long run, for the best. And so I'll just point out one quick thing that makes me a little bit nervous about the level of regulation that's going to be here, which um, there's actually been, I think, two executive orders written sort of in this direction already, which is that we want AI to be more equitable. Um, and there's various ways that they go about doing that, reducing biases in AI. They don't get into specifics. But I did find some specifics of things people don't like where AI is being not equitable or biased. Um, and some of them, I just wonder if uh, the cure is worse than the disease. So take, for example, there, uh, there are some jobs, high paying jobs, where the ads go to too many white men. So disproportionate number of white men than women or people of color. So that sounds bad. We want our ads to go uh, out equitably, I guess. Um, but what if the people who just have the degrees, maybe it's some sort of construction, something, I don't know, a very heavy lifting masculine job. You're a uh, executive in a construction company. We want somebody who has that background. Maybe that just is going to the people who it's going to because that's what you're looking for. And so are you going to have to change the models now so that you're going to have to sift through 10,000 applications, only 1,000 of which meet what you really need um, versus the 1,000, which wasn't targeted in the right direction? Same thing. Apple was apparently giving smaller credit lines to women than to men. Um, and they said that their algorithm was gender blind. They didn't even know who they were. And yet that's bad. And so that's going to be rooted out. Well, what if that's the actual correct credit score? You know, so just because you have a disparate outcome, does that mean you have to change the algorithm? Risk scores for recidivism. The, the risk scores were in general higher for the black population than for other minority groups. So that sounds bad. Should we change the algorithm so that doesn't work? Or was for totally non-racial inputs, was the output actually correct? And they were correctly assessing risk. So this type of regulation where because we don't like the outcome, because the outcome doesn't seem good, we're going to require a different type of input. That, that presence in this executive order, that level of control makes me very concerned that we're going to shift AI based on what makes us feel good about ourselves um, and what we like and um, and what's politically popular. So now you're adding politics to this that might not serve society and serve a function, serve the truth. And, and, and that just makes me a little bit nervous. I guess I'm of two minds of this. Uh, on the one hand, I agree with you that if government starts dictating what AI algorithms models can be based on some non-commonly or non-fully held view of what constitutes equity or inequity, I've got a problem with that too. But on the other hand, I think the, the very fact that we can have this conversation, we can have this conversation because we have information about how these the, the sort of results these models are generating. So I'm I'm okay or at least I can be okay with saying well 
these AI algorithms, we should know about if they are reporting or if they are generating results or procedures that seem to be on the face on the face of it inequitable. But if there's a good reason for that, and you suggested a number of instances in which maybe there is a good reason, that's possibly okay. But we don't know that unless we have some sort of reporting requirements, because there's no incentive for these companies to report that on their own. And so I have a, I agree with you in one part of this, and I think we probably part ways a little bit on that second part, I would expect when it comes to that. But, but in any case, I feel like, I think you would probably agree with me on this is that it's hard to see that that part of the order surviving uh, an inevitable challenge from the industry, I would think. I would think, but the fact that there are these industries and these algorithms are already being pointed out. I mean, some, some of the instances that people are complaining about, Oh, like I just, when you look on Google image in certain professions, women are underrepresented. It's like, okay. So now the Google image results, like how even do they have to be, you know, what if it's not just men and women? Now we have to have non-binary in an equal percent. It's just like, the amount of oversight there, that there could possibly be um, is overwhelming. So, yes, maybe it'll be challenged. Maybe it'll be struck down. But sometimes these regulations have a way of not being challenged, even if they are illegal, because people want to seem like they're doing the right thing. Well, in this case, I, I, I will predict with what I feel is a high degree of confidence that this this part of it, that part of it will be challenged. And I cannot imagine that surviving a challenge, but we will see. And when that happens or doesn't happen, I guess we will bring that up. Last week, May and I were talking about uh, elections and uh, uh, Georgia in particular. And one thing May said uh, is that, uh, May, you'll recall, you said you're in the uh, election integrity space. And on the Republican side, there's 100% confidence, not 99, not 98, but 100% confidence that Georgia got the results wrong. And my response to that was, well, do you mean that some votes were miscounted? And because that happens all the time, or do you mean that enough votes were miscounted that actually gave the state to Biden when it should have gone to Trump? And you said, well, that's the latter. That's what I mean. And based on that, a number of listeners commented saying, well, a couple of things, really. First off, that they didn't feel that uh, you gave that much weight both to uh, Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, saying that the DOJ had found no evidence that would change the outcome of the election. And also Trump's cybersecurity chief, uh, Christopher Krebs, who issued a statement saying that the November 3rd election most secure in American history. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, Donald Trump fired him. But I should point out for some context here, May's remarks were focused on Georgia. And winning Georgia alone wouldn't have been enough to change the results of the election, get Donald Trump to 270 electoral votes. Now, May, you also mentioned issues with Pennsylvania. We talked about that a little bit, late counting of ballots, uh, ballots, sorry. But even with putting Georgia and Pennsylvania into Trump's column, Biden still wins. And so you need like Georgia, Pennsylvania, and one other state, uh, Arizona, is often talked about to flip over. Now, we're not going to 
relitigate the 2020 election here. God, no. But I thought it would be useful for us to do a couple of things very quickly in response to these listener comments. And first, I was hoping we could sort of clarify May's position. May, there were a few listeners who were wondering if you were commenting about Republican election integrity people in general, or if that was sort of your view based on the evidence that you've reviewed that Georgia was wrongly awarded to Biden over Trump. So maybe we can start there. Yeah. So definitely the former. My comments were about, you know, the people who are doing the election integrity stuff, you know. So when you see a lot of these uh, either people in the media or lawsuits, are they, you know, are they lying? Do they know that Biden won and they're just saying stuff? Or do they honestly believe it in their soul? And my comment really was just they they honestly believe it in their soul that uh, that Georgia, that Pennsylvania, that that Arizona, um, that there was enough. I don't want to say fraud, but there was enough funny business not to trust the results. So my comment really was just, is it an act or is it real? And I, I'm telling you that it's real. So, you know, Bill Barr, Chris Krebs, they can say what they want. Um, My comment is not whether they are or are not credible. I'm just saying that the people in this space who are making these claims have heard both sides. They've seen what they're going to see. And this is their opinion. And they're they're not uh, they're not being fake about it. it. That's my comment. Right. So. Which is not to say that there aren't people who are making those arguments in bad faith, but the but most of them that you are aware of are, to the best of your knowledge, making them in what you believe to be good faith. Exactly. So they might be. And I think that they have been sort of proven incorrect in various ways, whether in their final conclusion, whether in some of the ingredients that go into that conclusion or um, maybe even if not proven wrong, uh, sort of the weight of evidence has not worked out in their favor. I gather that I'm just telling you that if there's a problem in the United States about trust in elections, you're not going to be able to overcome that by saying, no, the elections are good. It's going to need to be more than that. And that's, I think, one of the problems that I've seen with a lot of these secretary of state's offices is that they, they'll they put out these statements. Our elections were good. And I just think that the the level of transparency is not there to actually trust that. And we had so many changes during COVID that I think that a uh, return to normalcy is warranted here, maybe not permanently, but in order to establish some of the safeguards and the guardrails. So I'm just going to go through a couple of statistics to help understand why that return to normalcy might be a good thing. Um, So right after the 2020 election, this is Pennsylvania statistics. How many people thought that the final election results accurately reflected Pennsylvania? Republicans very confident in the results, 14% versus Democrats, 82%. So huge delta. And when you kind of look at why that is, it's not Dominion voting machines in Venezuela and all that. The largest uh, statistical reason I could find was 
The spread of fake news and misinformation on the internet is a serious threat to our democracy. How many people believe that? Republicans, 73% very confident, 18% somewhat confident. So that's a huge number of Republicans who are really not blaming some sort of conspiracy theory in Venezuela, but have a problem with the media. And when you look at what the media coverage was like leading up to the 2020 election with the COVID death tracker uh, on, you know, the side of every screen with Hunter Biden's laptop being labeled Russian disinformation and not being allowed to even exist on Twitter or Facebook. It was stripped from those websites, from people being told if, you know, that sort of censorship I think gives people grave distrust. It is a reason why we have the First Amendment is because we are meant to spread our ideas. They might not be true, but that back and forth debate is sort of the underlying basis of our democracy. And that was, in essence, shut down before the 2020 election. So there are some of these things that just need to be paid attention to and re-corrected. And it doesn't mean we have to say voter fraud is fake and therefore you're wrong. I think that there are some real problems here um, that that just uh, that are not in people's heads. And and one final statistic. So um, the MIT Election Lab has a very good chart of how people have voted over time. And 1992, it shows, you know, 94 percent of people are voting on Election Day in person very few reasons of, you know, very little early in person, very little male absentee. The trend kind of, you know, goes, the, it, it is linear and it goes toward each other. And then all of a sudden on the 2020 election day, that linear model just completely changes. And then voting flips all of a sudden now male and absentee is not, is almost 50%. And election day voting in person on election day goes down to below 30%. So that rapid change that was not following the trend, I think, gave people grave concerns. Like, are you guys ready for this? Do you have the system set up for this? And so in Pennsylvania, 2022 poll, Mullenberg College, what percentage of people would trust the next election if it were run by mail? Only 6% of Republicans said that they would be very confident. And the number for Democrats is not that high either. It's only 52%. So I think that this use of mail ballots, um, while not necessarily inherently fraudulent, um, the, the rapid change that was happening not in line with what people were expecting was concerning. And, and a return to normalcy, I think, would help recorrect reset some trust. I think that there's some good points there because oftentimes we conflate these two elements. Uh, the, the issues with all the rapid and major changes due to COVID in the 2020 elections and then whether the 2020 election was quote unquote rigged or if the right person won, that sort of thing. And, and I think oftentimes it's more helpful to look at those issues separately. And it sounds like you're, you're doing that. And I think that's a really useful sort of way to approach the issue because I think anyone who's looks at how elections are administered and knows how difficult it is, even in good times to get sufficient resources to, to, 
administer elections. It's not necess- it's not generally a high priority for folks to fund that kind of thing. Uh, it concerns are concerns are reasonable, and we should care on both sides about the integrity of, of elections. And finally, I guess May for people who are struggling to understand this viewpoint and saying like, I I don't know, I'd like to kind of get sort of a broad perspective on this. Is there any place you could recommend that they could go to kind of get a sense of what the argument, generally speaking, from the right is on this? Yes. So I think that Molly Hemingway's book, Rigged, which I know that the title of the book is very triggering, but um, it's meant to be. It's a book. She's trying to sell it. Um, Is a very interesting and thorough accounting of the 2020 election in a way that is not for crazies. I mean, she says Rudy Giuliani is nuts, Sidney Powell, Linwood, that all of these people did a lot of harm. So that is the angle. Like, it's not trying to, um, you know, uh, give give conspiracy theorists some air here. It is just explaining, here's the amount of money that uh, these swing districts saw come in. Here's what happened in Fulton County when they told all the poll watchers to go home, but four people stayed and continued counting. And when the poll watchers came back, they said there was nothing to see here. They were done counting. So these are not things that necessarily mean fraud, but they are reasons. They chip away at our trust. Um, They chip away at our transparency. Um, So I, I think that if you want to understand kind of why why there's distrust and then maybe even try and think about ways that we could improve, fix that, I think that the book rigged, it's very long, but it's very good and it's very easy to read, um, is a good place to start. Okay. And I'll make sure we put a link to that in the show notes for today. At this point, we have come to the end of our time for a regular show. And there was so much we didn't get to. We wanted to talk about those pending Trump ballot disqualification challenges and a couple of big First Amendment social media case blocking case for the Supreme Court and Senator Tuberville's military blocks, ACA marketplaces, all stuff that we will try to get to in the supporters midweek show. So if you're if you're not already a supporter, We hope you'll consider becoming one because not only do you get that full midweek show, but you get all kinds of other good stuff like ad-free episodes, the full-length midweek show I mentioned, that access to our Politics Guys Discord group, and like Derek, who's with us here today, you can actually be part of the experience, I guess I'll call it, as we are recording our shows every week. And if you want to find out more about any of that, Go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also support us at Venmo. We're at politicsguys or through PayPal. And you can find all of our support links in the show notes, as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you would like to get that full length midweek show, but you're not able to financially support us right now, that's not a problem. Just send me an email. I'm at mike at politicsguys.com and I will get that set up for you. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help us out if you can subscribe, rate and review us on whatever podcast app you happen to be using, and share episodes on social media. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you have a question, comment, you think I got something wrong or May got something wrong, 
mail at politicsguys.com is our email address. There's our Discord I mentioned, and we're also on Facebook and X, and you'll find links to all of that in the show notes. And finally, as always, a very special thanks to our wonderful executive producers. They are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.